Today's scripture comes from Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, and Acts chapter 20, verse 24. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. However, I could consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Eighteen years ago, on May 20th, 2000, uh, 40,000 college students gathered together and sat on the grassy fields of Shelby Farms in Memphis, Tennessee to listen to a pastor uh, that was relatively uh, unknown at that time. Pastor Gene was actually one of those 40,000 college students. And a pastor stood in front of all of these students, a pastor that was uh, old enough to be everyone's father, uh, named John Piper. And John Piper stood up there and he pleaded with our generation not to waste uh, our lives. And he began the sermon by sharing a, a story about two people that went to his church named Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards. Ruby Eliason was over 80 years old. She was single all of her life and she was a nurse and she dedicated the last chapters of her life in Cameroon, Africa as a missionary. Laura Edwards was pushing 80 years old, also single all of her life, and a medical doctor. And she teamed up with uh, Ruby Eliason in Cameroon, and together they did ministry there, and they would go from village to village, uh, working with the poorest of the poor. And one day, the brakes give way, they drive over a cliff, and they instantly die. And Piper says, was that a tragedy? And you hear some of the college students uh, sitting on the grassy field say, no. And in a way that only Piper could, he says, well, I'll tell you what a tragedy is. And he talked about Reader's Digest. And he says, nobody reads Reader's Digest anymore, but there was a generation that once did. And there was an article in Reader's Digest that was entitled, Start now, retire early. And this is what the article says. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when Bob was 59 and Penny was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. And Piper says... You want to know what a tragedy is? He says, that is a tragedy. Because one day every one of us has to give an account for our lives. And he said, do you want to spend the last chapter of your life saying, look, Lord, my shell collection. You know, I listened to this entire sermon this past week because this sermon swept over my entire generation 
So much so that the following year after I graduated from college, I packed both of my suitcases up and I moved halfway across the world to China because I wanted to live for something that was bigger than myself. I wanted to live for something that was bigger than my golf swing. I wanted to live for something that's bigger than just traveling, eating good food, and posting it on Instagram. I wanted to live for something that is bigger than myself. And you know what? I want each and every one of you to live for something that is bigger than yourself as well. But you know who I want it the most for? Myself. Because something happens when you get older. As you get older and older, your passion begins to die. It subsides. Think about, for some of you, how on fire you were for God when you were in college. And take a look at your life right now. Now, the inner lawyer in us will justify ourselves by saying, well, I have a career now. That kind of passion is not sustainable. It's zeal without wisdom. That kind of passion, I can't have that right now because of how old I am. I have a career. I have a family. I have kids. I have bills to pay. This is the real world. And I'm not minimizing that in any way. I'm a part of that demographic. But what I am minimizing and critiquing is the fact that we have all bought into the American dream hook, line, and sinker. Most of us would not even entertain the idea of uprooting our lives or our families' lives and moving halfway across the world to a place where there's a theological famine and a poverty of churches. And even though oftentimes we complain that God's voice is very ambiguous, cloudy, and unclear, this much we are certain of, God is not calling me to do something that radical or be a missionary. And so my modest goal for today and for the next nine weeks as we launch our new sermon series, is to have the gap close between the life that you're living now and the life that God actually wants you to live. For these two points to come together. Because as long as you're still in the driver's seat, you are not living the life that God has planned for you. I want to read you a quote from John Tyson, who's a pastor here in Manhattan on the first page of your bulletin. And In his book, The Burden is Light, this is what Tyson says. Passion always critiques complacency. Binge-watching entire seasons of TV shows on Netflix, normal. Spending $4,000 on a trip to Europe, normal. Training hours a week to maintain our looks, normal. Joining a fantasy sports league and tracking it like a Wall Street trader, normal. Devoting your life to serving Jesus, extreme, probably unhealthy. And what Tyson is saying here is that the biggest problem to Christianity is not atheism. But what Tyson is saying here is that the biggest problem in Christianity is apathy. It is indifference. And so for the next nine weeks, we're going to be launching a series on the Go campaign to see what God has in store for our lives because the greatest cure for apathy and indifference is to know your why. Simon Sinek is a marketing consultant. Some of you might know the name. And one of the reasons why uh, Sinek says that TiVo failed and never caught on to become a verb like Google, that's the reason why we use the word DVR now instead of TiVo, but he says one of the reasons why TiVo never caught on is because TiVo explained what it could do 
but they never explained why you should buy it. So they would say, buy TiVo, here's what it could do. Pause live TV, rewind live TV. It can record five of your favorite shows simultaneously, and it even memorizes your viewing habits, so buy TiVo. But Cynic says they never explained why you should buy it. And so what they should have said instead is this, are you a busy New Yorker? Do you spend more time outside of your apartment than inside of your apartment? Are you, are you the type of person that likes to be in control of a situation? Then boy, do we have the product for you. Buy TiVo. It can pause live TV, rewind live TV, record five of your shows simultaneously, and it even memorizes your viewing habits, so buy TiVo. And what, what Seneca's saying is that it's not enough just to talk about what we do, we also have to talk about why we do the things that we do. And so let me give you a few whys from a few billion-dollar companies uh, that some of you I know actually work for. This is Ubers. Transportation as reliable as running water, everywhere for everyone. Airbnb's mission. Airbnb's, uh, Airbnb connects travelers seeking authentic experiences with hosts offering unique, inspiring spaces around the world. SpaceX mission. Their why is this. SpaceX was founded under the belief that a future where humanity is out exploring the stars is fundamentally more exciting than one where we are not. Today, SpaceX is actively developing the technologies to make this possible with the ultimate goal of enabling human life on Mars. Pinterest why. To help people discover things they love and inspire them to go do those things in real life. And the mission of WeWork. WeWork's mission is to create a world where people work to make a life and not just a living. Now, if the tables were turned and someone were to ask you, what is your why? How would you respond? No, not what you do. I'm a lawyer, I'm a startup guy, consultant, whatever. Not what you do. But why do you do the things that you do? What is your why? How would you respond to that question? If we sort of ambiguously and sort of stumble the words out of our mouths, I'm afraid that we're not living our lives as intentionally as we ought to or purposefully. And instead, we go into a default mode that looks something like this. The second quote of your bulletin that has been attributed to people such as Dalai Lama, but no one is exactly quite sure, but a wise person was once asked, what surprises you most about humanity? The response, man, because he sacrifices his health in order to make money, then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health, and then he is so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present. The result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he is never going to die, and then he dies having never really, really lived. Acts chapter 20, in Acts chapter 20, 24, Paul talks about what his why is, what his mission is. And in Acts chapter 20, 24, he says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. If you take a look at the first part of Acts 20, 24, Paul says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. Now, how is Paul able to say that, and why does he say that? I think if most of us were asked that question, how much is your life worth, 
we would say our life is worth everything. It's worth more than money. It's worth more than treasure. It's invaluable. It's priceless. And yet here, Paul says that his life is worth nothing to him. It's not even worth a penny. Now, how is he able to say this? Well, there's a Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor who has written a very influential book called A Secular Age. This book is not an easy read by any means, but if you're able to pile drive through this book, in A Secular Age, he talks about the secular mind. And what Charles Taylor says that in a secular mind, secular framework or worldview, the world that we live in in our life was created by sheer accident. It wasn't created with a sense of meaning or purpose at all. And therefore, the brief time we have underneath the sun, 50, 60, 70 years of our life, doesn't really have meaning as well. But here we are, grown-up germs, and we have to do something with our life. And so in a secular framework, because this is the only life that we have, the, the only telos or goal that we have of this life is to squeeze as many transcendent experiences as we can, hedonistic, pleasurable experiences into the short time frame as much as possible. And so Taylor says that this is the fundamental goal in a secular framework, our own individualistic flourishing, even though the world that we live in is completely absurd. Uh, Alex Rosenberg is a philosopher at Duke, and in his book, The Atheist Guide to Reality, this is what he says, uh, is there a God? No. What is the nature of reality? What physics says it is? What is the purpose of the universe? There is none. What is the meaning of life? Ditto. Why am I here? Just dumb luck. What happens when we die? Everything pretty much goes on as before except us. What is the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? There is no moral difference between them. Why should I be moral? because it makes you feel better than being immoral. Does history have any meaning or purpose? It's full of sound and fury, but signifies nothing. And so what Rosenberg is saying is because of the absurdity of life, the only real goal in a secular framework then is to squeeze in all those transcendent little experiences as much as we can under our brief time in the sun. And yet here, Paul in Acts chapter 20 doesn't think that way at all. He actually says that his life is worth nothing to him. And the reason why he's able to view his life as disposable and somewhat sacrificial is because Paul believes that this isn't the only life that he has, but there is also eternal life. And I'll give you an illustration of this. In Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, there is a scene where there, uh, Gandalf the wizard and Pippin, this little hobbit, they're, they're they're stuck in a chamber in a castle. And on the other side of the door are these ugly, hideous-looking creatures called orcs. And the orcs are just barricading through the door. And Pippin, being this little hobbit, is terrified. And smelling utter defeat, he says to Gandalf, Gandalf, I didn't think it was going to end this way. And Gandalf curiously looks at Pippin and he says, End? No, Pippin, the journey doesn't end here. Death is a path that we must all take, and then you will see it. And Pippin says, see what, Gandalf? See what? And Gandalf says, white shores and beyond in a far greener country. And Pippin says, well, that doesn't sound so bad. And Gandalf says, no, Pippin, no, it doesn't. What Gandalf knew that Pippin didn't is that this isn't the end of their story, 
but there is another chapter that is left to be written. And because Gandalf sought the next pages of his life, despite the dire situation, it gave him a sort of poise that Pippin didn't have. And so Gandalf's mission at that point was to lift the eyelids of Pippin to help him see that there is more to this life than just this life. And in Christianity, we believe that there is more to this life than just this life, but there is also eternal life. You know what that does to us? That means that when we think about this life, it isn't everything. Our own individualistic human flourishing is not the telos or goal of our life. In fact, we can now view this life somewhat sacrificially. It's somewhat disposable, and therefore it enables us and empowers us to live more courageously uh, and more boldly as a case. In a secular worldview, and I don't think any secular people would disagree with this, in a secular worldview, this life, this is the closest you will ever get to tasting what heaven is like. It will only get worse. But in a Christian framework, this life is the closest you will ever get to experiencing hell. It will only get better. And as a result of that, it changes the way we view our present because of the future. But Paul not only looks at this life as somewhat disposable and sacrificial because of eternal life, but he also views this life like a race, like a journey, meaning that there is a destination that he's going towards. And because he views life like a race, his life is injected with a sense of meaning, purpose, and mission. In other words, his life isn't just a circle that he is running around aimlessly, but his life is filled with intentionality. You know what, you know what a life looks like that is not filled with a sense of purpose, mission, intentionality, a life where someone doesn't know their why? Well, let me read an article uh, for us from the Daily Beast called the Gener uh, Generation Z is Already Bored with the Internet. And the writer interviewed several teenagers, and here are some excerpts from what they said. When I'm bored while well, I'm on my phone and I'm switching between different apps, I'm just searching for something to do, said Addie, a 15-year-old in Long Island. It's like walking around your house in circles. Sarah, a 14-year-old in New York, describes it this way. I'll go on Insta and it's just people talking about the same things. I'm like, I already saw that. We see the same lip gloss, the same meme 14 times. It all gets old and you get bored. Sometimes I feel like I've seen everything there is to see on the internet, echoed Violet, a 15-year-old in the UK. I'll circle around on different sites. I'll just watch the same videos on YouTube until I'm so bored, I start clicking random things on my phone. One of the most haunting lines from this, uh, these excerpts is the line from Addie in the first line where Addie says, I'm just searching for something to do. And if we're all honest, whether we're a teenager in our 20s, 30s, or 40s, all of us have felt this way before, where we feel like we're just a hamster in a wheel, just going around and around, not exactly knowing uh, what we're doing with our life. And if there is a race where we're trying to run, the only race that we're really running is the rat race, where we're trying to climb the corporate ladder as high and as fast as possible. It's the only race that we're really winning, uh, running. And not to minimize that in any way, because every good work 
is a good endeavor. Every good work is a good endeavor. But sometimes I feel like in our city, we don't just work to live. We live to work. In New York, work is not just a penultimate thing, but it is our ultimate thing. Because we have so bought into the dream, the American dream, a hook, a line, and sinker. But when you take a look at Paul, he says that he is running a race, and therefore there is some intentionality. I can't help but think about the words from the missionary William Carey, who once said, I am not afraid of failing, but I am afraid of succeeding at things that don't really matter. For Paul, he is running a journey, a race, a marathon, and because of that, his life is injected with a sense of meaning. And the reason why he's living this life this way the reason why he considers his life worth nothing to him is because Jesus considered his life worth nothing to him. Jesus' mission, Jesus' why, was to die on a cross for us. Jesus knew that he had 33 years to run a race. And because of the brevity of his life, his mission wasn't, I'm going to squeeze in as many transcendent experiences as much as I can because I only get to live 33 years here on this earth. Rather, his mindset and his mission was, during the 33 years I have of my life, I want other people to flourish, and I want other people to live. And the only way of other people flourishing is if I don't flourish. And on the cross, Jesus came, and he died for our sin. That was his singular mission. He considered his life worth nothing to him. And when you realize that that was Jesus' mission for you, to die for you, and that was his why, how can we not go on and be on a mission for him? If we are saved by sheer grace and sheer mercy, there is nothing he cannot ask of you. Everything's on the table. If we were saved by our own merit, our own righteousness, our own performance, then we could negotiate the cost of being in a relationship with him. But if you are saved by sheer grace, and you didn't deserve this, but you're saved by sheer mercy, there is nothing he cannot ask of you. Everything is still on the table. In the summer of 1997, I went on a missions trip to Mexico. And on the last day of our village ministry, we went to the beach because our village was right by the beach. And my team leader and I, we decided to go swimming. We went body surfing, we went climbing. And we went out a little bit deeper than everyone else because it was low tide. And I sort of grew up on the beach every summer. I like to surf and all that, and so I'm familiar with the ocean. But I remember that we were getting to a point where my feet could no longer touch the ground. And all of a sudden, we were, we were doggy paddling for minutes. I mean, it felt like hours. I'm sure it was just a few minutes. And I realized that we were in trouble. And... Uh, I remember screaming out to everyone for help, but they all looked like little dots on the shore. And I I could see them happily playing soccer with our Mexican friends. It was so frustrating because I knew that we were in trouble. And so, and it sent my team leader into a panic because I was panicking and screaming for help. And I didn't know this at the time, but we were caught in a riptide. 
And the water just began to suck us in. And if you're stuck in a riptide, you don't, you don't think like this when you're stuck in it, but you're not supposed to swim perpendicular to it, on, to the shore, but you're supposed to swim parallel to it. We were trying to swim perpendicular to it towards the shore because it's human nature, human instinct. But as a result of that, it completely depleted our energy. And I knew that we were in trouble. We were just swallowing like liter, uh, uh, gallons of salt water. And I remember there was this huge wave that came and just buried me into the abyss of the ocean. And I remember thinking at the age of 18, two things. Number one, this is it. You know, like drowning, I mean, drowning is one of the worst ways to die because you're just waiting to die. And I remember thinking, because it, it did go in slow motion, that this is it. And a part of me was thinking, thank God. Uh, my 18 years of living were not the easiest. It was hard, and I was okay calling it quits. But there was another part of me that I didn't anticipate as I was drowning in the water, and that was a tremendous sense of peace and poise that I didn't anticipate. <laughs> Here I am at the age of 18 looking at death in the face, and there is a sort of catharticness that I didn't anticipate. And for 18 years of my life, I had grown up in church, but I had never, ever felt a single point in my life that I was really, really a Christian. I never had an assurance of salvation whatsoever until that moment because I actually believed that a next chapter was going to be written, that this wasn't just it. And all of a sudden, another wave hit me. My big toe hit the ground. I, I burst out of the water, inhaled as much oxygen as I could, and went right back down. And eventually, it was just a seesaw going up and down, up and down, until I could finally land on my feet. I looked for my team leader. He was like 20, 30, 40 yards away from me at this point, and I knew that I could not save him. I could barely save myself. So I run to shore, and I yell at everyone to help, but no one really understands what's going on. And so I see this, uh, 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 this Mexican guy, and I'm not making this up. He's wearing like leopard Speedos, and I'm like, Ayuda! And I point at my team leader, and he sees what's happening, and we both run and go get him. But by this time, somehow, some way, he had made it to his feet as well. There are no lifeguards there where we were. It was in the middle of nowhere. We drag our friend to the shore. He's having like mini seizures. I'm having mini seizures. We're both, we both look like we're possessed. We hear an ambulance coming 20 minutes later. Later on, we found out that the reason why that ambulance didn't come and pick us up was because it ran out of gas. And so we had to wait another 20 minutes for another ambulance to come. They put us on the stretcher, oxygen mask half open, and we're go there's no streets. I mean, there's no asphalt or anything. And so the, the ambulance is going up and down like this, like a pimp my ride car, all the way to the hospital. We go into the emergency room, which is one room, a pregnant woman going into labor, a guy that got beaten up in a bar and was cursing in English for some reason, and the two of us that almost drowned, all in one room. I wake up the next morning, our urine had turned into blood, we had no oxygen to our brain, we found out. And there were tubes in my arms and in my nose, and the both of us wake up simultaneously, and we just start laughing hysterically. Because we knew that we should have died. We knew that we should, we should not be living. And I remember at the age of 18, waking up that day, opening up to James chapter 3. And in James chapter 3, it says this, Do you not know that your life is like a mist that appears and then vanishes, no longer to be remembered? And I remember thinking at the age of 18, 
My life is like a mist that appears, no longer to be remembered. No one's going to remember me 100 years from now, but that's precisely why I want my life to count. That's precisely why I want to live for something bigger than myself. And you know what? I want that for each and every one of you as well. That was a commitment that I had to make at the age of 18, but this is a commitment that you must make as well. And so for the next nine weeks, we're going to be launching a sermon series called The Go Campaign. And there are three demographics of people that we're going to be focusing on, the least, the last, and the lost. Three sermons to each of these demographics. We'll flesh that out more in the next nine weeks. But we want to go out into our city and into our world. We've been great at telling people to come, but as the Great Commission would say in Matthew 28, we also want to go out into our city and into our world. And there are three numbers as helpful metrics that I want us to think about in terms of overseas work, and that is 1%, 10%, and the 100%. We want 1% of our congregation, that's three people because we have over 300 people now, to go long-term, that's one year or more, 10%, that's 30 people, to go one week or more to a place like Cambodia. And we want 100% of our congregation to support financially and through prayer. Francis Chan humorously once said that Christians are like manure. You spread them out, and they help everything grow. You keep them in one big pile, and they stink horribly. We have been one big 300-pound pile of manure for almost four years. It is now time to spread out. It is not enough just to gather, but we must also scatter into our city and into our world. Please pray with me. Father, ignite a passion within our hearts. Turn our embers into a flame. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.